take a breath. Uh, as I said before, we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of John. This has been my practice ever since I started preaching 27 years ago, is to preach through books. I actually preached through the Gospel of John many years ago. Actually, I preached through every book in the New Testament with the exception of two at this point. That's how long I've been here. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, we're in the Gospel of John now. We've been here now for a time, and we will be here for quite a bit of time beyond this. Uh, we are in chapter 3. It's taken us quite a few weeks to get there, but we're making progress is the reason I bring it up. Uh, but we're going to be looking specifically this morning in chapter 3 from verses 14 through 21. So hear the word of God. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, he might, or that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him uh, is not Condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name uh, of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come in the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I just want to remind us, first of all, that Jesus has just said this. Uh, he, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wishes so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We believe very much that in, in, in the rule that Scripture interprets Scripture. Which means this. It means what we just read has everything to do with what we studied last week. They're not disjointed things, disconnected from one another, but is a continuation of the thoughts that John brought forth as we were here gathered last week, where he so very clearly lays down this biblical principle. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Which means this, that for us to come to Christ means that we have to be born again because we are born in sin. We are dead in those sins. God has to send forth his Holy Spirit to change that. To open our mind and our heart to the things of God that would otherwise be dead to those things. Jesus then refers to an event that took place in Old Testament times when Israel was wandering in the wilderness led by the, the Lord through Moses. 
took place at a place called Mount Hor, uh, about 60 miles southwest of the Dead Sea, where we found the people of God grumbling, as they had often done since they came out of Egypt. Grumbling uh, because, well, this is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, which was not true. God always provided for them both. And we loathe this worthless food. In other words, they hated the manna that God had given them to eat. And as a result of that, God sent forth fiery serpents among the people who bit many of the people and the people died as a consequence. And what the Lord told Moses to do was to make a serpent of bronze and put it up on a pole And when people looked upon it, that they would live. Now it's hard for you and I to even think about that, look look at that without thinking of this as being somewhat of a pre-picture of Christ. Christ being lifted up on the cross. And we know this, that when people look upon that Christ... And they believe in him and trust in him. They may be saved or they will be saved. And that's the only means by which anyone is saved. There are a lot of things pictured in this. Remember who was described as being the serpent early on in the Bible? Satan himself. And we know that Adam and Eve, they were, they were created pure, but they chose to listen to Satan, to his lies, instead of listening to the Lord their God. And we understand that he indeed is described in Scripture over and again as the great serpent. I hope no one derives from this the idea that Israel was now worshiping Satan because they were, they were worshiping this bronze serpent. That is not at all what is going on here. But there are some things that are underlying that we need to consider when we look at this picture. We know this, that in essence, when we look up upon Christ on the cross, that he heals us from the venom of Satan. The lies of Satan. This is the picture that we need to acknowledge. This is the picture that we have to have or we need to understand when we think about this particular Old Testament event. It's a uh, a picturing of Christ to come upon whom we would look and upon whom we would gaze and through whom we would be saved from the death of sin. Jesus 
has defeated Satan already. Certainly to a greater degree later on. That we know because we are in Christ, we have no need to be in fear of Satan at all. It doesn't mean that we don't need to be cautious of him and, and, and protect ourselves from those lies and that sort of thing. But we need to understand that, that he cannot, he will never, ever snatch us away from the hand of God. Strangely, being lifted up on high in Scripture typically means to be exalted. Very often, a description that is given to the Lord. Remember the vision of Isaiah in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up. Just think about this, that uh, when, when God appeared to, to Israel... At Mount Sinai, he was up on the mountaintop, and Moses would go up on the mountaintop, and the, the people were in fear of the Lord because of his manifestations, of his power, and the shaking of the mountain, and the noise of the trumpets. But it seems as if even pagan people, at least in those days, had some sense of those high places, those mountains being the abode of even their pagan gods. You see it over and over again in the book of Judges and other places in, in First Kings, uh, pagan idol worship centers in the places that we were called the high places, the mountaintops. This brings us to one of probably, could very well be the very best known verse in all of Scripture. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I forgot to read verse 16, the important one. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the verse that most, probably most people, even unbelievers, have probably heard that in their, their lifetime. And what a precious verse it is. I hope it's one of your favorite ones. It's also probably one of the most misunderstood and distorted Verses in all of Scripture. As hard as it is for me to say that, people read all kinds of things into it that are not intended here at all. There are some people who look upon that verse and they glean from it universal salvation for everybody. In other words, God doesn't expect anything for, from anybody at all. No repentance of sin, no expression of faith, or anything. That, that, that Jesus died universally so that all people would be saved. Now, I don't know how you could possibly get that from this, as long as you keep it in context. Because you put it in context, it is not what it's saying at all. 
Christians, you can kind of classify into two general groups as far as their understanding of exactly how this applies. We are Reformed. We are Calvinists. And not something that we're ashamed of. <laughs> uh, we, at one time, at the Protestant Reformation, you need to understand something, and that is pretty much everybody believed what I'm about to tell you this morning. And it's only through the generations of the church that have transcended down from the 1500s, 1600s where people most, I would say this morning, the vast majority of Christians have watered off course. Because the majority of Christians would tell you this. That their belief of the gospel or the idea of the gospel is that God loved the world so much that he provided a way of salvation for anybody and everybody. And they would tell you that that is what this passage actually teaches. And let me tell you something. If you take it out of context, you could come to that conclusion. But if you keep it in context, you can't. Remember, Jesus has just said that you must be born again, born by the Spirit, and the Spirit goes where the Spirit wills. In other words, what, what John is declaring here is God is absolutely sovereign in all things, including all matters of salvation. People very often judge people that look upon it the way that we do very harshly. We're cold-hearted, we're nasty-spirited, you know, this, that, and the other. And let me tell you, maybe sometimes they have some ground for making that argument. Because I know some people that are Reformed that are mean-spirited, nasty-minded people. And let me tell you something. When you truly understand the things that are being taught here by the, 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 the Apostle John, it doesn't make you a hard-hearted, cold-natured person at all. It doesn't make you arrogant. It doesn't make you proud. It doesn't make you puffed up, which is one of the charges that very often people will bring against you when they find out that you're reformed. I've had people tell me those things about me because I am a Calvinist. You're cold-hearted. You don't care about people. You don't love people. I hope you understand that's not true. There is no place in Scripture where God promises that He's going to save everybody. There is a promise in Scripture, however, where God promises to save some people. And He does absolutely everything necessary to make that happen. Not by the will of man, but by and according to the will of God. By his sovereign mercy. 
So what I'm telling you is this, is whatever sets you apart from other people is this. Is if you believe, you believe because God has enabled you to do it. He could have very easily passed over you. He could have left you where you were. But he, by sovereign grace and mercy and his love for you, has chosen not to do that. He has done absolutely everything to ensure your salvation. Period. You cannot lose it. It cannot be taken away from you. And when you realize those things, if it makes you feel arrogant and prideful and puffed up, you need to reconsider things because you don't understand it. Because it's easy to jump to that conclusion. And see, this is what people would say. They would say that you're proudful and you're puffed up because you think you're better than other people. That's not it at all. It's you coming to the point of realizing you are nothing but a dirty, rotten scoundrel and you do not in any way, shape, or form deserve to be saved by God, but he doesn't anyway. That's what grace is. And when you truly understand it, you will be humbled, not made proudful and arrogant. Understanding that the only thing that makes you any different than an unbeliever is God has entered into your life. God has changed you. God has brought you to where he wants you to be, period. And it's not because you're better looking. And it's not because you're better in any way than other people. The re- God has his reasons, but his reasons are not revealed to you or to me at all. See, the difference in our understanding of John 3.16 is this. Is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And God has done everything to make that not possible but a reality. The whole world, every person that has ever breathed air, deserves not the love of God. Every person deserves his absolute disdain. But see, this is the grace of God. That in every case, he loves the unlovable. That's you. That's how great and that is how lovely and how wonderful and beautiful our God is. And he calls us not to be proudful and and puffed up people and arrogant people. He calls us to humbleness 
in humility, in truth. You see, if the Lord had not done what he did, then no one would be saved. All people would perish in their sins. Everyone. Absolutely everyone. God chose not to leave us where we were. He chose to do what was absolutely necessary to change our course We contribute absolutely nothing. He does it all. He did it all. That's the only place where we can have assurance of salvation. Let me tell you, if my salvation depends on me in any way, shape, or form, then I'm, my goose is cooked. The assurance we have is that when God gets a hold of you, he will not let go. You see, Jesus died on that cross not to make salvation a possibility for you. He died on that cross to save you. You see the difference? In essence, what the gospel does is restores man's relationship to God to, to what it was originally intended to be. You know, you hear very often people are very, very uh, almost hateful toward people like John Calvin. But I don't know how much of you of reading of John Calvin's commentaries that you've read or whatever. And let me tell you, when, when you read what he writes, I don't see how you could possibly come to such a conclusion as this. Some people want to call being Reformed as being Calvinist. Well, we, we are Reformed, and I guess we are Calvinists because we believe the same thing that he did. But I don't classify myself as a Calvinist. This is what Calvin writes. Christ clothed himself with a form of sinful flesh that he might cure in us the deadly wound of sin. We are so very dear to God that he did not even spare his only begotten son. See, when we look at the cross, we should contemplate a lot of things, but one of those things is this, is that is how much God loves me. The Son of God came down willingly from his lofty abode to live and walk among us that he would be lifted up, or lifted, that we would be lifted up out of our lowly estate to become children of the living God. He did it. Our message <clears throat> is becoming more and more unpopular in today's counterculture. 
<clears throat> I'm of that generation that, uh, you know, up until my generation came along back in the late in the 60s, if you look back through the generations, you would have found that <clears throat> the children basically followed in the same religious relationship that their parents had been without much question. And <clears throat> in other words, being a church churchgoer, being a Christian was kind of tradition. And people more or less let, stayed with that tradition. If, my, if, if, if mom and dad had gone to church, if grandma and grandpa went to church, then the kids went to church. It was something that was expected of everyone. But my generation back in the, the, the 60s was that generation that, that came along and, and began to say things like, just because mom and dad did it does not necessarily mean that I'm going to. And you can understand that back about that time, church attendance began to drop. Fewer and fewer younger people were making it to worship services. The things have continued to evolve now. I mean, we're to the point now that people, certain people want to reject just about everything that we hold dear. Counterculture, the culture and lifestyle of those people, especially among the young, who reject or oppose the dominant values and behavior of society. We're seeing that unfold before us as we speak. The mindset is even changed. It used to be just because mom and dad did it doesn't mean that I'm going to do it, but I might. The thinking now more and more is if my mom and dad believed it and practiced it, then there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to. You understand that what we're seeing unfold today has been unfolding gradually for generations. But this counterculture wants to reject everything that you and I hold dear. God and country. Anything and everything goes. Socially, sexually, any way you can think. Rules and regulations are archaic. People should be able to do anything and everything that their heart desire pushes them to. That is the thinking of the day. No restrictions. Whatever feels good, do it. Whatever you think, say it. Jesus, in a few more chapters, is going to say this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can you think of a more exclusive statement spoken among men than that?
The amazing thing is that, that is this, is that if you brought that particular passage to the attention of a lot of the people around today, they would be very greatly offended by it. The strange thing about it, and I could bring other statements to you that uh, are just as powerful and closed-ended as that. But the amazing thing is this, is the church in the world today stands as the most integrated institution that has ever existed on the planet In other words, the Church of Jesus Christ is the most diversified group of people that have ever existed. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female. Doesn't matter whether you're young or old or black or white or yellow or green. Tall or short, bold or shy. Smart or not smart. The church is the most diverse group of people that has ever existed on the planet. It supersedes every human institution, every human organization, every race, every nationality. Now you tell me that the words of Jesus Christ are divisive. They are the words that bring people together in a bond like nothing else ever has or ever will. Every barrier that serves to separate people from other people, gone completely except for one. Do you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or do you not? The Christian message is, in fact, an exclusive message. Therefore, we can expect a growing resistance to it. The concept of Jesus' light was introduced in the prologue. What we read and studied in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Darkness can be a very scary thing. Some people are said to be afraid of the dark. But it's not even the darkness itself that people are afraid of. It's that which might possibly be lingering in the dark that we cannot see. 
So we're thankful for light because light gives us the ability to see what's going on around us. To lay our fears to rest. But the light that John's talking about here is not literal light. It's rather what we would call spiritual or moral light. Jesus has come into the world and revealed, made clear mankind's sin in its moral darkness. And the world has hated him for it. And not only him, but very often those associate with him. Jesus did many things in his coming, but one of those was he revealed the ugliness, the destructiveness, the fallingness of the human heart in ways that it would have remained in the dark otherwise. That is why he's the light. He helps us to see how we really are. And people are either attracted to that light or they run from it and hide from its revealing nature because they don't want to be revealed. The unbelieving do not just avoid the light, they hate it because it reveals their true nature. Isaiah wrote these words. He spoke these words. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shined. Jesus has done this to the world. Jesus, later on in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, will, will heal a blind man, a man who was born blind. And the assumption in that story of the, even the apostles is this, is that he was born blind either because of sin he committed or sins that his parents had committed. Every physical affliction was attributed to sin on that person. So if you didn't have any, what did that say? Then you were sinless. But Jesus made it very, very clear that it had nothing to do with his parents or even with his fella. That it all took place for the benefit of the apostles. Well, for the guy too. But also for the apostles. And not only for them, but for you and I. He's called by the Pharisees to give witness. Because everybody in the community knows that he's been blind ever since he was born. 
So he's called to the authorities to give an account of what happened to him, and he tells them. And this is what he concludes. I don't know a lot, but I do know one thing. Though I was blind, now I see. That's your testimony. That's my testimony. God has done it. God has changed us. God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear. So who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? Not us. He does. All of it.